Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. We're in a series called Anchor, Anchored, and the idea behind Anchored is finding and going a little deeper and finding those areas of our lives where we find foundation and we can put something down and know I can really, really trust that. I can believe that. I can build on that. And so the way this message is going to go today is I'm going to start with a passage in Philippians. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Philippians 3 in your Bible or if you have a device with you. And I'm going to end with that same passage. But this kind of sets up what the message is about today. And I'm going to ask a question, who is God? Who is God? The premise of this whole series has been what does, where does bad theology begin? Bad theology always begins with the wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And so today we're not going to be just looking at what is God like, but who is the God that we're trying to figure out, what is he like? So I want to start with Philippians chapter 3. You can look on your device or look on the screen or in your notes. If you have your notes, follow along today if you would, please. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death. Paul is saying, I want to do one thing in my life, and that is I have discarded everything so that I can know one thing, and that is to gain Christ in my life. To know this God, not just to know about this God, but to know who it is that I'm believing in. We live in a world that's full of creeds, confessions, manifestos, mission statements, vision statements. And in the process of that, those creeds and confessions become our theology of what we believe. In other words, what I speak and what comes out of my thoughts becomes the theology of the way I live my life. All of us are theologians in some way. In fact, I like, look at your neighbor and say, you know, I didn't realize it, but you really are a theologian. And just to hear yourself say that, I'm a theologian, because the word theology means theos, view of God, ology, study and delivery of what I believe. So every one of us, we live a world and we live in a life that I have a theos, I have a, I have a God. And so today, part of the question I'm going to ask is, who is the God in your life? Who is the God that's in your life and, and what is it that you're holding on to because your ology is the way that you take what you believe and it's the way you live it. To start today's message, I want us to, in your notes and on the screen, there's going to be a creed that we're going to declare aloud. And you're going to see why I'm going to do this because there's something about speaking and confessing or manifesto or a statement that begins to either I embrace this or I don't. And, and let's go with the Apostles' Creed. And I'd like for us to declare our common faith by reading out loud the Apostles' Creed. Here we go. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now what we just read out loud was the Apostles' Creed that dates back to 140 A.D., a little over 100 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, there was a need to begin to say, what is the common language that we can begin to speak? The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles, but it was the summation of the theology of the Apostles. Early church leaders had come to a place that they needed to know, how do I sum up and how do I declare what I really believe? But I want, it, want you to notice the first two words of the Apostles' Creed are what? I believe. I believe. In the midst of some of the most heinous crimes of our day today, they've been because a shooter had written out a creed or a confession sometimes called a manifesto. Recently, we saw what happened in the mosques in New Zealand. He had a manifesto. He had a theosology. He had a theology. He had a belief system that caused him to do something that was so horrible. But his theos and the living out of what he believed gave him, in his mind, the purpose to say, this is the way I'm going to live my life. Confessions are things in our lives that we as believers express to other people what we believe and what we affirm and what we're going to be loyal to. Confessions imply a certain orthopraxy or orthopraxis or not just the ortho, the knowing, but the practice, the praxis of what I believe. And too many times we think, well, I know all about God, but not just knowing God, but what is the practice of God? What is the delivery system that comes out of my knowing of God? And so we've got to go back and ask the question, who is God? The reason we have creeds is because it's a formal pledge of allegiance to a set of doctrinal statements concerning God and how God relates to his creation the english word creed comes from the latin word credo which exactly means i believe in fact in your notes i'd like you to take them home this week and there's two questions what is your theology what is your theosology what do you believe about god and how do you see the delivery system because the second question is how do you view god and his integration into your life so if I'm asking the question who is God then how do I know there is a God how do I know there's a God you say, well that should be simple why are you even asking that in church because I believe there's something about our theosology that may have been a bit tainted we may just know something about God but not really know God so I'm gonna give you two points today in the idea of who is God. So in your notes, here's the first point. The undeniability of God. The undeniability of God. You say, well, why would we even take time 
here in Scottsdale or in Tempe, if you're watching online, why would we take time to even ask the question, does God exist? I mean, because you would think that's kind of like a given. The Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights both reflect that, and it quote, all men are created equal and they are endowed by their capital C creator with certain unalienable rights. Our money has on it, in God we trust. The song God Bless America is sang at most major sporting events. You would think that, why would you even ask that question? I mean, why would, Phil, why would you even bring that up and take part of a message about the undeniability of God? We, we all believe in God. Do we? The latest Pew Research Center survey of more than 4,700 U.S. adults finds one-third of Americans, one-third of Americans do not believe in the God of the Bible but they do believe in some other higher power spiritual force, but one-third of us do not believe in the God of the Bible. Just a slim majority, 56%, say they believe in God as described in the Bible. And in our day today, and this was done in, again, a cross-section of 4,700 people. That's a, solid, that's a solid survey. It was done in 2017, released in 2018, and then upgraded into 2019. So here's where we're at. One out of every ten Americans do not believe in any higher power or spiritual force. So why do we need to ask about, is there truly an undeniability of God? In your notes, I want to give you five reasons that I believe we should believe in the undeniability of God. So if you have your, your notes there and a pen, if you don't, just grab one out of your neighbor's purse or something but find a pen someplace because you're not going to remember this the first thing i believe that needs to happen is that in the undeniability of god is that number one there's a moral and pragmatic side that shows us that there is a god a moral and pragmatic and what i mean what and who is the foundation of morality of dignity of human worth right and wrong the meaning of life. Where does that come from? What and who decides the moral speed limits of life? Who, who is it that tells us what is morality and what is immoral? And, and can I do this or should I do this? If God and his word are the fundamental, fundamental basis of all this, then if all of this is only true, if God does exist. Because if God doesn't exist, then there truly is no moral compass in our world because it's all left up to reason it's all left up to a feeling or that's the way i see things but i believe that the undeniability of god comes back because we have to have a pragmatic moral compass in our lives that's showing us this is right this is wrong do this don't do that and with moving god out of who do you turn to so undeniably there is a god the second thing is experiential Humankind is incurably religious. Millions upon millions of people claim to have an experience with God. And people that do not believe in the living God claim to have an experience with a higher something. It may be a tangible or non-tangible. It may be a star constellation. It may be a mountain. It may be an animal. But many people and most people believe somewhere that there is something that we have to experience with something bigger than us. Calvin said it this way, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. Within every single one of us, there's an awareness that there's something that's divine. 
We long for something bigger than us. Here's the third reason of the undeniability of God, the cosmos. What do you mean by the cosmos? The things we see. See, there's only two possibilities about this whole idea of the creation. Only two. The first is there's an eternal, non-existent nothingness that brought about nothing. Or there's an eternal someone that brought something from nothing. That's the only two things it can be. The Bible says it this way in Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I love Arizona to walk outside. The big skies that we get to deal with. I, I, I just love to walk to the mailbox to get my mail and just do this. Because when I look up, it makes me realize how small I am, but how incredible God is because the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. What's speaking? God's creation. Night after night, they make him known. In the New Testament, Romans 1 and 20 says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Now, now watch this language. Ever since the world was created, there's a seeing, and through everything God made, that's creation, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. You say that's an oxymoron. Notice, through everything God made, we can see the invisible qualities. And what are those qualities? His eternal power and his divine nature. The word there for divine nature is the Greek word theotis or the Godhead. We can see the Godhead through what is created. And here's the sad part of this verse that we sometimes jump over. So they, who are the they? That's people in this earth, have no excuse for not knowing God. My question is, how can you explain in, in the cosmos, in the creation of God, how do you explain photosynthesis? I mean, I'm taking some of you back to junior high and high school, but photosynthesis, remember that's when plants take in the carbon dioxide that we breathe out. The plants take it in, and then they, in turn, create oxygen, which flows out of the plant life that allows there to be this balance on our... Who's doing that? How does that happen? We've got to believe there's something bigger than us that's making this photosynthetic process go on that we're allowed to keep continually breathing O2. The seasons... Who was it that made this past week that spring sprung and all of a sudden, who's out there right now putting and painting and hot gluing little flowers on all the stuff and who is it that's coming into my yard and putting the weeds in there? I want to know the guy. I want to meet this guy that's doing it because I don't, he has been very, very busy. Who's doing that? How do you not believe that there's something bigger than all of us when I begin to realize that every day of my life, the sun has come up in the east and it is set in the west. Who is doing that? It's got to be something that we believe in God, at that there is a power that is existent, not subexistent. It is the very creation of all that is, and that is God in creation. The fourth thing is historical. The historical data, as you go back and look at some of the early writings, even from the early hieroglyphics to even some of the Indian uh, relics that are here in Arizona that are found in some of the rock formations, everyone has a story that always involves something that intervened in life. 
something that had either a sun go with it that allowed it to go up, or power rose, and there was always something in historical status. And in the book of Acts 26, Paul is before King Agrippa. His life is on the line, and he begins to tell King Agrippa and a gentleman named Festus, he begins to tell them an historical account of a little nation called Israel and how that Israel has this history with God. And how that that God who formed himself and began to have a group of people called the Jewish people, that he began to reveal himself not just to Jews but to Gentiles through his only begotten son Jesus and that we could have a personal encounter. But here's what it says in Acts 26, 26. These events are familiar to him for they were not done in a corner. Nothing that God has done, the prophetic, the historical, the, re the relevant word of God and the revealing word of God have always shown that there is a history that involves something. The question is, who is that to you? And then the last, the undeniability of God comes down to the idea of community. By nature, we are social creatures. We long to belong. Even Jesus claimed that his community, his followers, his people in John 13, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Jesus said the consistent connection that we have that happens between us is going to be proof to the world that I am who I said I am. And so there's an undeniability of God through the moral and pragmatic, through the experiential, through the cosmos, through historical data, and th for, for, through community, and that's what we're doing right now, is we're living in community. We express that in a seven-day cadence called Shabbat, or Sabbath, a rest and worship. And that's why you're here today. That's why you're in Tempe, is we live in community. Let me give you the second reason of who is God and why I believe there is a God, and that's the unexplainability of God. The unexplainability. Even though God is unexplainable, he's still undeniable. We still have a theology that determines how we relate to him. For example, if you explain God and you were maybe raised in an idea or a system that God was always angry and you were subservient to him, then you're going to live in fear and you'll miss and lose the wonder. If you were taught that God is eternal, and all that God is is he's eternal, then you observe in amazement, but he always seems distant because he's eternal and you're not. If your view of God is he's a creator God, and you just follow what is called natural theology, just seeing God in creation, then the awe of God is there, but the intimacy is lacking. And what you'll do is look at God and say, great job. I have no idea how he did that, but good God. There has to be in our lives an explainability of God that has to link back to the romantic heart of God because God is love. When that side of you begins to embrace the romantic heart of God, you can't help but worship and engage with him and also engage with his family. In 1 Timothy 3.16, this idea of who is God comes to light, and most of you have heard this verse before. It says, without question, 
This is the great mystery of our faith. The original word there in the word mystery, it does not mean it will never be understood. It does not mean incomprehensible. It just means that the understanding of God is just, it's revelatory. It has to come through revelation. It doesn't come through knowledge. It doesn't come through intellect. Great is the mystery of our faith. Christ, now here's what this mystery is. Christ was revealed in a human body, vindicated by the Spirit, He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. There's a mystery there. How did that happen? How did a virgin conceive and have a child? In your notes, this is probably one of the best one-liners. An infinite God, explained by finite minds, creates challenges and undermines the essence of of the Godhead. When we started working on this series, Preston came to me and said, you know, I want to I do a series on, the, on, on God and, and this idea of who God is. And he said, let's look at the qualities of God. So I took some time and I said, hey, hey, Preston, he went through, he said, let's look at this. And so he went through and he said, guess what, I've got this. And back some time ago, he said, man, I've already got a, I got a four-week message on the qualities of God. And I thought, thanks. He said, I want you to do a message on the Godhead. I thought, thank you, Preston. Thank you for just throwing me under the bus. You get to have all the great ones about this is God and God is this, and I get to try to explain who God is. This unlimited God that I am limited in my capacity, and I don't understand him, and and I don't even have the knowledge to put my head around who he is, and, and I'm supposed to take a message and say, who is God? I will never become God, and I can't understand God so there is always going to be an unexplainability of who God is but before we go too far down the path of being unexplainable I want to ask a question what do I know about God what do I know so in your notes here's the first thing that I believe we know about God is that there's a unity of God and that God is one And it's referred to as monotheism. Christianity is not tritheism. We are not embracing of three gods. We believe there is one God. In fact, the Ten Commandments begin with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's Exodus 20, the second book of the Bible. He's giving the marching orders of how we live our lives. And he said there'll be no other gods. God called for an exclusive worship and devotion and obedience to him. Then on top of that, God places a prohibition on idolatry with the second commandment. So he sets up the Ten Commandments, then he takes the second commandment and says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. He said, look, I am only God. Don't create anything else. Don't allow anything carved to be like me or think it's me. In our Gateway Life class, which is, we have a brand new class starting next weekend. If you've not signed up, we're asking everyone to go through Gateway Life. You say, well, I don't want to start, I don't want to do the one in April because I'll miss Easter weekend. No, we're not doing it that weekend. That's why we're starting next weekend. So uh, in Tempe, here, if you've not signed up for Gateway Life, we still have spots open on Saturday at 5 and Sunday at 11. But we teach what's called, one of our core values is the word Shema. 
the word Shema means to obey. It's the embodiment. The word Shema is the embodiment of Jewish truth that was to be propagated daily to your children. When you rise up, when you sit down, always speak of it. And what is the Shema? It's Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Does it give us this monotheistic view of God? You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Even the demons embrace the fact of this monotheism that we believe and embrace as God. 1 Corinthians 8 and 4 and verse 6 says, we all, we all know that an idol is not really a God and that there is only one God, but for us there is, now listen to this, there is one God, the Father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. You say, well, now you've got me so confused now. I don't even know how many gods there are. You just said there's one God, Father, there's one Lord, Jesus so what do we have going on here? In the Bible, there is this idea, and, and this is where, when I ask, who is God, my question is, who is your theos? Because from that is what allows you, I've had people say, you know, when I pray, do I pray to God the Father first? Should I pray to Jesus? Or should I pray, or it, it, what happens if I pray to God? What's going to happen to Jesus? Is he going to get mad at me because of that? Have you had somebody ask you that? Because you say, well, I don't understand. You just read that there's this God. Here's the way it makes the most sense. And this is using a original language. So please, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just trying to say there is a divine essence of God. And I'm going to come into Scripture in a moment. And the word asusia. There's one divine essence or nature of God. Biblically, in the Old Testament and New Testament, it is repeated over and over. And any view of God that postulates more than one distinctive divine nature, the asusia of God, is embracing polytheism and has nothing to do with the God of Christianity. But here's the second part of God is a monotheistic one God, but there is a three-in-oneness to God. That term three and oneness is from theologian Dr. Millard Erickson from his book, Christian Theology. Probably one of the greatest theologians in our day to day. He uses this idea of the three and oneness or God is revealed or made known in a tri-unity. Now, and this is where the fun part, so don't, don't, don't just go brain dead here. Remember, Preston said that this is going to be, we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to stretch your brains. We're going to ask you to think a little bit here. But I've had people use analogies to try to explain God. Let me see. Have you ever heard this one? God is like an egg. Don't raise your hand if you've used that. God is like an egg. He's the yolk. He's the white of the egg. He's the shell of the egg. That's tritheism. I've heard people say, God is like water. He's a solid if it's frozen. He's liquid if it's thawed out. And he's a vapor if you heat the water enough. That's modalism. Here's the one that I heard recently that I had never heard anybody use, and that God is like a pair of pants. Hang on. Single at the top, plural at the bottom. I have no idea what that was. I'm like, serious? God is like a pair of pants? Let's go back and use the egg or the water, because that was really off. 
But most analogies tend to be tritheistic or modalistic. And that's what happens is we've tried to find terms to describe God. And in the midst of finding terms, early church fathers and leaders were fighting paganism. They were fighting heresy. And their attempt was to find a common language that would serve as a defense against false teaching. For example, maybe you've heard the, the thought is that God is three persons. And in your notes, the word persons is used in reference to God. It comes etymologically from the word in the Latin, persona, per, through, and sono, speak. In other words, speak through. The idea was a mask through which a Roman actor would speak, and hence the specific character that he was portraying. You've heard the word trying to explain God, Trinity. The word Trinity came from Tertullian, who converted to Christianity a little around 200 A.D. and defended Christianity prolifically until he died in 220. He initiated the use of the three Latin words, Trinitas, persona, and substantia, or Trinity, person, and substance, to express the biblical teaching that there is Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one divine essence, a Susa but distinguish relationships in the persons within the inner life of God. Hebrews 1 and 3 says it this way, and, and this will help some. And I'm not trying to give you a Greek lesson. I'm just trying to say, who is God to you? The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character, and the word there is hypostasis. Now you have asusa, essence. Hypostasis is the very revealing of. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Hebrews 1 and 3 reveals that there is Jesus as the hypostasis of God, the essence and exact likeness of the Father. Early scholars use the word Latin substantia. There is one substance, the hypostasis flows out of the one essence of who God is. You say, well, I'm still confused, because that's why we have creeds. That's why we have confessions. It was man's attempt to help a fledgling church in the midst of Roman and Greek paganism and mythology. The men that were involved in these writing and using terms were feeble, finite, godly men attempting to try to lead a newly formed church into the first centuries, the first three centuries after Christ. Were they perfect? No. Was their language all-inclusive? No. I want to quickly give you the three councils that took place from which the creeds that we in the Christian faith belong. Here is the first one, the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Some 300 bishops gathered together, many of who bore the scars of the persecutions that came at the hand of the persecutors who fought them. And they fought for this and said, we've got to convene, to, and they resolved the debate over what was called Arianism or the false teaching that Christ was a creature. He was an angel who was the highest created being, but not God. And out of the Council of Nicaea, they declared he is not like God. He is fully and eternally God. The Council of Constantinople in 83-81 extended the discussion to say, wait a minute, we've left out the identification of the Holy Spirit within the Godhead. And it solidified the orthodox doctrine of the full humanity of Christ. And the last of the three that most of us have heard about is the Council of Chalcedon. 
and 84, 451, they focused on the relationship of Christ, humanity, to his divinity. This is what is known as the hypostatic union. That's why I gave that to you in the, ver in the original Greek in that passage. That was the issue formed at Chalcedon that said that the orthodox statement of Christ is that the hypostatic union is that Jesus is one person with two natures and therefore simultaneously fully God and fully human. So, well, why did they do that? And I think that really what happens is that we as individuals, we're trying to grasp a theos. We're trying to grab a theology of God. But I believe what God was trying to show us is that inside the Godhead, there is a perfect love and unity inside that Godhead that he wants us to model in the body of Christ. In your notes, this is probably one of my favorites of all the one-liners. Someone once said, try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. Deuteronomy 29 and 29 says, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us. Get it? Remember I said there's a difference between knowing God and having the revelation of God. So that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom. And knowledge how impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways understandably I know there's a God undeniably I know there's a God that has revealed himself can I explain it no and I'm just gonna ask for a moment as I was studying for this message I'm just going to say this in, a, in the best way of humility I can, and I submit this to you. I have an earned master's, and I have an earned doctorate from two highly respected universities. And you would think by now I should be able to make this so easy that all of us should be able to say, got it. Studying for this message, I went back and read through the early church fathers. I went back and read through the creeds. I went back and looked at historical and contemporary writers from Augustine to Tertullian. I looked through Arianism, Sabellianism, Pantheism. I went through all of the different ideas, and I was studying for this, and I finally just had, I had this much knowledge that my brain was exploding, thinking, how am I going to give this? And I was like, again, thank you, Preston. And so on Wednesday of this week, I started early in the morning, and at 9 o'clock that night, on Wednesday night, I shut the light off in my office after probably 12 hours. Two weeks of study, 12 hours of getting it in a manuscript. And I went to bed with my head just doing this. 2.30 Thursday morning, I woke up with my mind spinning. And I felt the Lord speaking to me, and in the process of him speaking to me, I thought, I'll remember that. That's good, God. Thank you. And then uh, he, he said, well, what about this? And I thought, that's good, God. Yeah, I'll remember that. And then God wouldn't stop, and I said, okay, God, all right, I'll be, I'm getting up. I'm up, I'm up. And I tried to sneak out of the bed very quietly so my wife wouldn't bother her. And when I got up, I actually went into my office there at the house, and I finished the message. But then I realized God wasn't trying to work on the message. He wanted to finish me. 
You see, that master and that doctorate may give me an intellect of the theos, but it does not give me an ology of how I live my life. I spent years around academia, around academics that tried to impress you with words that they used. And they had a theos. But when I looked at theology, their theos and their ology didn't seem to match. And somewhere between 2.30 and around 4 o'clock in the morning, God began to say, you've got a lot of things up here. But I want to talk to you for a moment. And he did. And I actually hand-wrote parts of this message. I normally do it on my laptop, but I started handwriting. And I finished the message. I felt comfortable. It was getting very early, getting almost ready for the sun to come up. And I thought, okay, God, thank you. And I went back to bed quietly, and I climbed in bed next to my wife very, very carefully because it was such a tender moment that the Lord had really dealt with me about me. And when I got in bed, I just barely gently kissed her on the forehead, and, and I just held her. And laying there, I felt like God said, you know what, you thought I was through with you, but I'm not. He said, when you met Pamela Faye Dillion years ago, did you know everything about her? And I responded, no. I said, in fact, after several decades, decades of marriage, three kids and six grandkids, I still don't understand her, God. And I said, God, I sometimes, I, I'll be outside the house and I'll, I'll hear her and I'll look through the window and I'll see her sitting down at a piano. And my wife is not a concert pianist, but she knows she plays by ear and she took lessons, but she sits down, but I hear her just playing and worshiping. And I think, how does she do that? When we planted our church in New York, funds were tight and we were trying to make a home for our two little girls and she said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make all the curtains for this house. And she made custom-made curtains for our entire house. And I thought, how do you do that? How do you know how to measure and how do you know how much cloth and how do you know how to put all that together? I said, you amaze me. Who teaches? And then she said she'll get out of a sewing machine and she starts making that thing called a bobbin. I think, how do you know where to put this stuff? I don't even know what you're doing. In fact, I don't even know how to turn the machine on. It's not uncommon when we go to visit our kids at the moment after we all say our fineries and we've had lunch or dinner together that one of the kids say, hey, mom, uh, Grace tore one of her good dresses. Could you maybe, could you maybe put that together again? Because she really likes that dress. Or Jack tore these pants. And mom, could you, could you fix this button on here and, and the side of the pocket? And I'm thinking, how does she know how to do all that? And then I feel like the Lord said, look at what she's taken through and the areas of ministry, of instances of ministry in the last decades of your lives together. And I said, God, I still don't have her figured out. And then I felt like he said something really sweet to me. He said, her eyes find it a little more difficult to thread a needle now. And you've watched her try to thread a needle to sew a grandkid's clothes. But she's going to do her best. And you still don't understand everything about her, but she is an amazing lady. And even though you don't know everything about her, do you love her? And I said, yes, I do. And then I felt like the Lord said, Phil, one more thing I want to tell you. I know everything about you. I know things about you that nobody knows. And guess what, Phil? I love you.
I love you even though I know everything about you. And my response was, God, I should know a whole lot more about you, but I do love you. This master's and this doctor do not make me know you, God, but I know you're drawing me into something that's real. And I believe today that's what God is asking of us. Not just who is God, not just you can explain God, but where is your ology of your theos? Like people would bow your head. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. We're going to go into worship, but I'm going to ask our altar team if they would move into place. I told you I would sandwich this message with Philippians 3. And so with your eye closed, I want you just, if you would, to hear this from the Passion Translation. To truly know him meant letting go of everything from my past and throwing all my boasting on the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now so that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord and all of his greatness. My passion is to be consumed with him and not clinging to my own righteousness. My righteousness will be his based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the very righteousness that comes from God. And I continually long to know, I continually long to know the wonders of Jesus more fully and to experience the overflowing power of his resurrection working in me i will be one with him in his sufferings and i'll be one with him in his death thanks for joining us on gateway.live for more information about gateway church please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com